Uh, for George Washington, um, it was the Revolutionary War. It was Valley Forge. It was the moment that they asked him to stay longer uh, in the presidency, and he refused to do so, even when he could have stayed maybe as long as he wanted to. Uh, for Abraham Lincoln, it was the American Civil War. It was the Gettysburg Address when he lifted up his voice and said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers set out on this continent to conceive a new nation, one that is determined to be committed to the proposition that all men are created equal. Uh, for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, it was the Great Depression. It, it was World War II. It, it was his words that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, or December 7th, 1941, this will be a day that lives in infamy. Uh, for John F. Kennedy, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's when he stood nose to nose and eye to eye with Khrushchev, and he refused to back down, and he refused to blink. For Martin Luther King Jr., it was the civil rights movement and the fight for it. It, it was the moment that he said, I have a dream. It, it, it was the letters that he wrote from Birmingham. Uh, that, that was the moment for him. For Ronald Reagan, it was the Cold War. Uh, it, it was being shot and overcoming that. It was the moment that he stood at the Berlin Wall and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. For Margaret Thatcher, who was the first female head of state in the Western world, and for Margaret Thatcher, it was the Iron Lady standing against the Iron Curtain. For George W. Bush, it was 9-11, and it was standing with firemen and people at the rubble of the Twin Towers when he says, I hear you, the world hears you, but soon those who brought down these towers will hear from all of us soon. For Nelson Mandela, it was the fight against apartheid in South Africa. It was being imprisoned. It was overcoming prison and even becoming the head of that country. But for one of my favorite leaders, maybe my favorite leader, um, but for one of my favorite leaders, uh, Winston Churchill, it was right before the German Luftwaffe began to pierce England's airspace in the South. And it's shortly before that moment in history when he spoke these words, he said, I expect the battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British empire and its commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And in recent days, it was happening right in front of us in Ukraine. It, a president who a year ago was playing the role of a president on television, a, a comedian, an actor who became president against all odds in a, in a landslide became president of Ukraine. A president who said, don't put pictures of the president on the walls of your house or your office. Put pictures of your family and then when you have big decisions to make, you look at them and you make the right decision. And in just in recent days as the Russian forces were drawing closer to Kiev and all the forces and all the might of Russia and the power that it has at its disposal as it was bearing down and the United States offers to the president of Ukraine 
a secured trip out of town, an extraction, an escort, out of harm's way, out of the place of danger, out of the place of conflict. Many of you, you know this, you saw this. He said, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. See, these are the type of leaders that our world could always use more of. These are the type of leaders throughout history, both modern and ancient. These are the type of leaders that draw us in. These are the type of leaders that they have some type of magnetic quality about them that's beyond charisma, it's beyond personality, it's beyond oratory. That there's something about this type of leadership that can galvanize allegiances, galvanize coalitions. And it's just not patriotism, though the patriotism is stunning and it's moving and it's attractive, but, but what's so stunning, what's so attractive, what's so moving is their strong courage. And just not strong courage, but a strong courage that is informed by a virtuous ethic, an ethic that is based on and committed to something that is good and right. It's it's a leadership that shows a strength of character, not perfection, but a strength of character and a commitment to what is good and just. And that's the type of leadership, that's the type of leaders that inspire men and women to action. That's the type of leadership that inspires men and women to join the mission and not only join the mission, but, but be compelled to even be willing to sacrifice for the mission. Now, all the leaders that I mentioned, men and women and American and non-American, Democrat and Republican, and so many differences you know, between their politics and their experiences and their agendas, but the one thing that they all have in common is that they all faced a time of testing. They all faced a time of testing. And it's the time of testing that reveals the mettle of a leader. It's the time of testing that reveals their courage or their cowardice. It's, it's the time of testing that reveals their conviction or their compromise, their distraction or their determination, their strength or their weaknesses. It's the time of testing that shows us their true colors, that pulls back the curtain. And all throughout history, it's just the truth of history, all throughout history you see this play out, that times of testing reveal who a leader really is and it shapes how we see them. It shapes how we see them. Now today we're in the fourth part of a series called The Kingdom. And we've been talking about when Jesus Christ of Nazareth, when he stepped onto the public pages of history, that he had a message and it was a consistent message. It was a honed in message. It was a very targeted message, a message that he preached everywhere he was to everybody he spoke to. And Matthew, who wrote the biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew, this is how he said the message of Jesus played out. He said, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And again, as we've said, this is what Jesus was always talking about. And, and what that means basically was that Jesus was saying that something has happened that's gonna cause us all to rethink everything. Something has happened that's gonna invite us to reorganize our lives around a new set of ethics, a new set of values based on a new vision for what life is supposed to look like, what my life is supposed to look like. He says it's a new set of ethics, a new set of values, a new vision for what life at general looks like and what your life specifically looks like. It's, it's a brand new vision that frames our existence as human beings. 
that frames our existence as human beings with both meaning and purpose. It's a vision, a new vision of how to see the world that, that gives us this perspective of how we see the world, how we think about the evil in the world, how that we perceive our place in that world, and a vision that offers us hope for the future of the world, even despite all the things that are seemingly wrong with the world. And when Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was the thing that had happened. The kingdom of God had come, new, had come near. A new day was dawning. Somehow, the beginning stages of an invasion was taking place. Heaven was invading upon the earth. And this became the theme of Matthew's gospel. When he said the kingdom had come near because the king had come near, there would be no neutral ground. Now, I've given it to you every week because I, wanna, I want this to get in your heart and get in your mind. I wanna invite you, everybody in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Middlesbrough, I, I wanna invite you just to begin to read through the gospel of Matthew. Just to read through this gospel as we study through this gospel because if you put this particular lens on, this particular perspective on, what's, what you read will have an entirely different life to it. it. It will leap off the page with perhaps a brand new meaning. So let's just go ahead and say this out loud together. You ready on three? One, two, three. The kingdom had come near because the king had come near. There would be no neutral ground. In chapters one and two, he says the king has been born and the lines have been drawn. In chapter three last week, he says the king has been announced. John the Baptist looks at all the people at the Jordan River and declared to all the world, behold, the lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world declaring from the beginning that the king had not come to take over just yet. The king had not come to take over, the king had come to take away the sins of the world. And announcing from the very beginning that Jesus, our king, would die on the cross in our place for our sin. And so the story begins. And today he's gonna tell us about how the king is tested. Because the testing of a, t of a king, the testing of a leader, that's when the curtains pulled back. That's when we see their backbone. That's when we see what they're made of or what they're not made of. And this is Matthew's way, the story that he's gonna tell us today. It's his way of pulling back the curtain on Jesus to show you, to show me, to show the world who this man really is when no one's looking. Who this man is. This is Matthew's way of saying, I wanna show you his courage and his commitment and his conviction, his strength and his resolve. I wanna show you how he responds in a monumental moment of testing. And I want you to discover what it uncovers when the king who was born and announced, when he was tested, when he faced his moment of testing, what it shows us about Jesus of Nazareth. This is how Matthew puts it. He said, then Jesus, after he was baptized and announced by John the Baptist, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And again, wilderness, it shows up. It shows up in multiple times in Matthew's gospel because the wilderness, it, it was a loaded term for the first century audience. It was a place where people went to be alone. It, it was a place where people went to go hear from God. It was a place where people would go to regain focus. It was a place of pause, it was a place of preparation, it was a place to encounter God. It was a transitional space where you know, ordinary life was suspended, where your identity began to shift and to emerge. 
new possibilities would arise. It, it was thought of in so many different ways. It, it was a place of danger and a place of chaos. It was a place of testing. It was a place of revealing. So it says that the Spirit of God led Jesus to this, this chaotic place, this disordered place, which really reminds us so much of the world that we all live in. It's disordered, it's chaotic. It's a place where we go to, we have to live in, and within it, there is the loaded potential for what is good and for what also is bad. And he says that the Spirit of God led Jesus to the wilderness. And then he goes on and he says to be tempted, to be tempted or to be tested, to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. Now, Matthew, he says lots of things here that he doesn't qualify and he doesn't explain because he assumed his audience would know. Uh, a couple of the things that he just says without even, you know, bringing any clarity to, he says that the Spirit of God led Jesus to the place of temptation, that the Spirit of God led Jesus to the place where he would be tempted. So automatically we learn something, that you can be spirit-led and you can be in the place of temptation all at the same time. You can be under the influence of the Spirit of God and you can come under temptation all at the same time. You, you can be led by the Spirit of God and you could be tempted by the enemy. You could be tempted by Satan. You could be tempted by the devil all at the same time and he doesn't even attempt to qualify it. He says beyond that, he says that there is this figure, this this persona, this personality called the diabolos in the Greek or the accuser or the slanderer or Satan or the devil. Matthew seems to just put out there that there is a personality at work behind all the evil in the world. Uh, this, this personality is not on the same level as God. God is all powerful and all present and all knowing, but this personality isn't. He's not on the same plane as God, but yet there is a personality at work behind the evil in the world. Uh, there's no such thing as the devil making people do things. You know, we'd all say, say that as a kid, you know, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. You know, maybe you didn't say that as a kid, I tried it, it didn't work. But the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't have the capacity to make anybody do anything because the thing that God has put into the fabric of the cosmos is the freedom of your own choices the freedom of my own choices, that it, within the value system and the ethic of God's creation, God, God has esteemed the free will and choice of humanity among the most important things. And so this Satan, this diabolos, this accuser cannot violate human will, cannot make anybody do anything. He can't overcome our will, but we learn not only in this passage, but in others, that he attempts to seduce our will, to lure us in, to bring our will under his will. And so Matthew just puts that out there and he says, it is what it is. Do we have more questions? Yes. Would we like a little more clarity? Yes. Would we like to talk about origins for just a moment and where did this all start and where did this all begin and where did he come from from the very beginning? Oh yeah, all of that. And that makes for some great conversation, but Matthew says, that's not the point of my story. So, you know, get over it. We'll talk about it a different day. So he just says, this is the way it is. And the reason that this story is so well known, even among children, and certainly among a lot of us adults who were exposed to church or some level of church is because at the heart of this story is something that we all get. Finally, something we can relate to in the Bible. It's something that, you know, all of us have to deal with. It's, it's temptation. There's not a day, 
There's not a day that we don't have to face temptation or fight against it. Now, I know some of you, you like to behave as though you are so holy, you're never tempted. But we know you. We know you. You know how we know you? We know me. And I know me. And we all know each other. So we all are tempted. It's just part of the human experience. At times, we overcome temptation. At times, we're overtaken by it. But the thing about temptation is it's unrelenting. It just keeps coming. Doesn't matter if you're a teenager, doesn't matter if you're a college student, doesn't matter if you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, 60s, 70s. There's not an age that you're gonna get to where you graduate out of temptation. As long as you have heartbeat and respiration and brain, there's gonna be temptation. Now, just, just, just as a framework, let me just give us a couple things to think about. Temptation is the moment when what you want to do is in conflict with what you should do. If you've ever experienced this, say I have. Okay, now the rest of you just succumb to the temptation of being a liar, liar, pants on fire. It's like, oh no, no, I've, I've never known what it's like that I wanted to do something, but I know that I shouldn't. That's just temptation. Temptation is that moment of choice. I'm gonna step over the line or I'm not. I'm gonna do it or I'm not. I'm gonna say it or I'm not. I'm gonna act on it or I'm not. It happens when desire, whatever that desire is, when desire meets opportunity. Now, if you got a desire without an opportunity, it's not much of a temptation, but you get desire and opportunity meeting up with each other, whoo! I'm telling you, it is a party of temptation. I mean, it is unbelievable what happens when desire and opportunity meets up with each other. It's that moment when this just feels right, it feels right, does it feel right to you? Feels right to me, feels right to you, feels right to you, feels right to me, then we probably should. And even though you've got that little voice playing out in your head, that little soundtrack in your heart, no, 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 this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, no, 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 no. And it's like, oh, it feels right, it feels right. So feeling whether it's right or not, it's kind of irrelevant. Temptation, that's why temptation, it's why it works. Feels good. And if temptation doesn't feel good to you, you're not doing it right. It feels good. It feels right, but you know it's not. And when you, when you end up on the wrong side of it, the consequences, the fallout, they can't always be managed. And the consequences and the fallout can be relational, it can be financial, it can be marital, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual, it can be psychological. Temptation is the moment when we consider trading what we want most in the future for what we want right now. It's like, well, we really want to retire, but you know, man, I really, really want to buy this, like now. And so I, I could pull it out and oh, there's that little bitty penalty, but you know, I can make it up and you know, we all have that in common. We all have that thought process in common. We all have that struggle with what we want most in the future, but yet there's something right there in front of us that we can have right now. We can enjoy right now. We can touch right now. We, 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 we want it most out there. We know what we want most, but there's something right here and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I can't say no to this, it's so good right now. And it's like, but it undermines even what we want most in the future. And none of us are exempt from that. Okay, how much you pray, how much you read, how much you sing. You, you may even, you may be so good of a Christian that you can close your eyes through all of the music set because you know all the words to all the songs. You, you don't even need a screen. You were like those people I grew up with who never needed a hymn book. I would just get mad, I, I, I would just bet. I was like, okay, 
I, I go up to the song. Would you, would you just sing page 246 today? Well, why? Because we never sing it. And I want to see if she knows it. And it's like, you know, she's always up there and she never opens up the book, but she knows every flipping word of the song. And you, you may be that good, but you're still tempted. Temptation can be so attractive. It can seem irresistible. It can almost seem like this, this is something I can't say no to. It's when our desire for pleasure or power or prestige or popularity, when, when our desire to express ourselves or exalt ourselves, when it surpasses our concern for the pain or the consequences that it might cause in the lives of other people. But at the end of the day, and this is where we launch into this, and this is kind of the, the, really the heart of the message, if you don't remember anything else about temptation, here's what I want you to remember about temptation. This, this, this is it. This is what it all comes down to. When you, when you knock it all down to the very bottom, temptation is the invitation to make my greatest interest self-interest. That's temptation. Matter of fact, I, I don't want you to forget this. I think you probably should write it down, type it in your notes, you know, uh, whatever you need to do not to forget it. But let's all just say this out loud. Temptation is the invitation to make my greatest interest self-interest. One more time because we don't believe it yet. Temptation is the invitation to make my greatest interest self-interest. Anytime I'm tempted to make my greatest interest one of self-interest, I should automatically know I am floating my boat in a bad direction. I'm right in a storm of temptation and I might not even know it. I don't even know what kind of temptation it is. But if I am thinking about my greatest interest being self-interest, I am already thinking contrary to the kingdom of God. I'm already thinking contrary to the king who sits enthroned over the kingdom of God. And ironically, it's been my experience that when I make my greatest interest self-interest, I end up hurting myself. How does that happen? How does that even work? We make self-interest our greatest interest and we end up hurting ourselves. And not only do we hurt ourselves, but we hurt others. And Jesus would teach later on, he said, when you make your greatest interest self-interest, not only will you hurt yourself, but in the end, you will lose yourself. This is the temptation we have faced since the garden. That was the temptation of Adam and Eve to make their greatest interest self-interest. Not the interest of their children, not the interest of the world, not, not the interest of God, their creator, their father, but to make their greatest interest self-interest. That is the temptation, the mother of all temptations. And this was the one that Jesus faced. Matthew goes on and says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry because temptations, they appeal to our greatest appetites. Nothing wrong with appetites. Everybody's got appetites, physical appetites, emotional appetites. Those appetites God gave us. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with the appetites that God has given us. Now, there's certain ways that we're supposed to satisfy those appetites and certain ways that we're not supposed to satisfy those appetites. And therein is in the struggle of my humanity and your humanity and, and our experience here on this planet. But temptation comes along and says, okay, I'm gonna appeal to whatever your greatest appetite is at the moment. And then I'm gonna wait for your moment of greatest weakness. And when your appetite is strong, and your strength is weak, that's when temptation likes to knock at the door. 
When your appetite is strong, but your resolve is weak. When your faith is weak. When your body is weak. When your mind is weak. That's when temptation loves to come. And so Jesus is at risk. He's vulnerable. He's weak. He's been fasting. And that's when the enemy moves in. And that's when the enemy will move in on you. That's when the enemy will move in on me. When my appetite is strong and my resolve is weak. That's when the enemy will move in because the New Testament says that this enemy that we have, he's like a hunter, he's a stalker. He's watching, he's listening, he's got a system for this. I, I, I can't explain it all. He, he doesn't know everything, he can't be everywhere, but, but he knows enough about humanity, he knows enough about me, enough about you that he's a stalker, he's a hunter, he's like a lion. And, Temptation is always laying there in wait and our enemy is lying in the high bushes waiting to pounce, waiting to crush, waiting to kill. That's how it works. And some of us, we know that's how it works. Now I don't say this to live in fear of the enemy because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And our enemy is already defeated. And so we're, we're not to live in fear, but we're live, as Peter put it, with soberness and awareness that I know there's an enemy. So it should give me pause. It, it should cause me to think about things, to pay attention to things. Should pay attention to the four W's of temptation. Who, what, when, and where. Who's involved? Who's there? Who are these people? You know? Or maybe it's just me, maybe I am the who, I am the problem, I am the who. Or what, what's going on? What's happening? What's the circumstances? What's, what's the situation? When is this happening? Is this first thing in the morning because I'm not a morning person and I get up and I just hate the world and I just start hating the moment my two feet hit the ground? You know, is it when I'm frustrated? Is it at the end of the day and I come home tired? Is it when I get stressed? Is it when I get worried? Is it, is, is it when I drink too much? Is it when I eat too much? Is it when I, you know, when I'm carb light and I'm just angry and I, it's like, it doesn't work for me. And it's like, I can't be a good Christian and be on a no carb diet all at the same time. It doesn't work. So it's probably not God's will. So some of you just need to give it up and feel good about it because nobody likes you when you don't have carbohydrates. But anyway. When does it happen and where? Is it at the office? Is it at the bedroom? Is it down in the basement? You know, what's going on? Is it when everybody's asleep? You know, what's, what's happening? Pay attention to that. Because when your greatest appetite pairs up with a moment of great weakness, whew, it's difficult. It says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It doesn't seem like a big deal. You know, like how, how sinful can turning stones into bread be? It's like, well, if that's the worst thing I ever get tempted to do, I don't have to worry about it because I can't, you know? Uh, but what is this all about? And so in the end, Satan is tempting. And, and I keep this written in, in my Bible beside this particular passage. And it's really the only way I know how to communicate it is that Jesus was tempted to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. To, to meet his appetite, a legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way. He's hungry, that's legit. It's, it's, it's a legitimate need, but, but Satan is tempting him to feel it and meet it and satisfy it in an illegitimate way because this is not God's will in this moment, in this season, in this place for Jesus. And really behind this temptation is Satan or the accuser or the diabolos saying, hey, you're hungry, dude. 
What kind of God would leave you hungry? What kind of father makes you hungry and then gives you no food or says you have to go without it? What kind of God says, I'm going to give you this appetite, but then I'm going to tell you sometimes that you can't do anything about it. You, you got this God-given appetite, but you can't satisfy it. You can't feel it. You can't meet it. You know, what's that all about? And so at the heart of this, there's this, this question of, can you really trust God? It's the echo of the garden. God told you not to eat from this one tree. Can you really trust him? Look how great these other trees are. Can you really trust that God knows best? Can, can you trust that God knows what you need? That he cares about what you need and he knows how to best meet that need? Can you really trust that? Can you trust that his plan is good? Is this all made up? Is this all fabricated? Does it really matter? Does anybody care? Is it, all, is it gonna make any difference in the end? Is, is this plan good? Is this plan at all? And is, is there such a thing as a plan and all of the thoughts that come? And these are the questions that we face. They come to us in different ways, but we all face these questions at some time or the other. Can you trust God? You're a teenage boy, you're 16, you're 17, you're 18. You're in college, you're in your 20s and your singles or your 30s or 40s and wherever you are in life and somewhere along the way the thought gets in there is, can I trust God enough to do it the way that he wants me to do this? Because I feel like, this would be easier, I feel like this would be better, but this option, it's, it's so attractive. This option, it's, it's right here. So what's the big deal? And this is the temptation, and this is how it works, and it's how it happened for Jesus. So Jesus, he flashes back 1,400 years through Israel's history, and he goes back to when, after 40 years, uh, the nation of Israel, you know, they've been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and, and while they were in the wilderness for 40 years, you remember, how did God feed them? He fed them with manna. And God told them, says, every morning I'm gonna send you manna down, bread from heaven, and I want you to gather just enough for that day, just enough for that day, because if you try to gather enough for tomorrow, it's gonna go bad, it's gonna spoil. And, and so he was literally teaching them to pray, Father, give me this day my daily bread. He was teaching them in a 40-year-long lesson about how to daily depend upon God, to daily trust that God knows best and that God has a plan and it's for my good, that God knows the best way for me to satisfy the appetites of my heart, my mind, my body, my spirit. And so, you know, Moses, at the end of those 40 years, he says to the nation of Israel, he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness those 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart? So there was a purpose behind this because times of testing, it reveals, it pulls back the curtain. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. He gave you this appetite. And he wanted you to know that the appetites that he gave you, that he alone knows how best to satisfy them, that he alone knows the best plan to meet those appetites and desires. He, hum he caused you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And remember, they didn't always like the manna. They wanted to go back and eat some meat in Egypt and the melons and the onions and the garlic and all of that. But God was teaching them. He says, which neither you or your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
God wanted his people to trust him with their appetite. You say, what does God want me to do? God wants me, as difficult as it may be, as excruciating sometimes as it may be, to trust him with the appetites that we have. To trust that his plan is good and right and best. So Jesus, he answered the enemy and he said, he borrows from this passage and he said, it is written, Satan, that man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then it was kind of like scene two. Matthew goes on and says, well, then the devil took him to the holy city. And so they left the wilderness and they walked into Jerusalem and they walked up to the highest point of the temple. And then he goes on and he looks at Jesus and he says, if, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands or in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And so, you know, here's a great thing to, to pay attention to. Even the devil quotes scripture. And let me just go ahead and help you. Parents may not like me saying this with teenagers in the room, but you already know this and they already know this. And if not, they should be aware of it. You can find a verse to justify anything you want to do. You just have to know where to look or how to Google. I trust that you know that there is some type of theological system out there in the world that will accommodate what you wanna do, accommodate what I wanna do, that will make me feel better about my decision that I know in my heart is wrong, but I can prop it up with a verse, prop it up with some theology, prop it up with some other argumentation that's not necessarily logical or true, and really trying to make myself. So he, he, there's a verse for anything and the devil uses a verse and it's completely you know, out of context. But he says, if you want people to believe you're who you say you are, just manufacture a situation. Jump off this temple and God will intervene. And it's almost like you can overcome the will of the people. The people, they won't even have a choice anymore. They'll have to follow you. And, and the temptation was for Jesus to presume upon God. And I would encourage you, I would put it right there in Matthew 4 because right under, he wants me to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. The next temptation is he wants me to presume upon God that you would do something because you believe you know how God will respond, right? You ever been there? You ever been tempted to presume upon God's grace? Well, I know this is wrong, but I know there's grace. I know there's forgiveness. I know that he still loves me. So I know that I'm not supposed to, but you know, I'm just gonna presume upon God's grace and I'll go ahead and do it because I know what he's gonna do. He's gonna forgive me. It's gonna be all good. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be peaches. It's gonna be great. We talk ourselves into it because we presume upon God's grace or we presume upon God's goodness. And we, we know that God has promised to take every bad thing and make it good. So we're like, well, I'm just gonna help him. Don't want him to get bored. I'm gonna give him something. Give him something to work with. This is bad, I know, but I believe he's gonna work it for good. It's all gonna work out in the end. And we presume upon God's goodness. We presume upon God's providence. Oh, this, this must be part of God's plan because it, I wouldn't wanna do it and it wouldn't be this way if God didn't want it to happen. And we presume upon God's provision. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna behave financially irresponsibly. And then when I'm broke or I'm in a really bad situation, then I, I'm gonna pray, Lord, would you meet my need? 
And he's a meat needer. I'll tell you, he's a way maker. Amen. Waymaker, need maker, need meter. That's him. That's him. So I'm going to break myself and then I'm going to trust that he's going to meet my need. And we presume upon the provision of God or we, you know, how a lot of, you know, Baptist folk, I grew up a Baptist, uh, but Baptist folk like do they presume upon, you know, the healing of God. And even though, you know, a lot of people think the Baptists don't believe in the healing of God, they absolutely do. It's just not the charismatics because Baptists will go out and they'll let their, you know, glucose go to 700 or let it get down to about 72. They'll eat everything that they want. They'll clog their arteries they'll shut down their pancreas and they'll do all that stuff and then lord would you just touch me and and we presume upon god's healing when we made a thousand and one bad choices and we presume that before we made the one thousand and second bad choice that god was going to intervene and make it all good that was the temptation That's our temptation. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Act three, he says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, if just for a moment, you will set aside all that you believe and all that you know to be true, if you'll set aside all of your convictions, if you'll set aside all of that for just a moment, everything that you cherish, everything that you love, all of that, if you'll just set it aside, not forever, but just for a moment, if you'll just set it aside and make it irrelevant, neglect it, ignore it, and just bow to me in this one moment, I'm gonna give you the kingdoms of the world. And then you can take it all back if you want. But see, Jesus, he'd come to conquer the kingdoms of this world, not with a sword, but with love. He had not come to take over, but to take away the sins of the world. He'd come to overcome the kingdoms of this world by the way of the cross. And the Satan, in this moment, the accuser, is offering Jesus what he offers us, a shortcut, a deviation, a detour. He's offering Jesus a crown without a cross. <laughs> bro, 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 bro. I don't know it all, but I kind of know what you're in store for. If you'll just set this aside for a moment, you can, you can, you, trust me, you don't have to do all that. I got a crown here and It doesn't involve a cross. I got a payday, but there's no pain. I've got a detour around all that pain, all that disappointment, all that betrayal, all that embarrassment. And who wouldn't want escape to escape the pain and the betrayal and the disappointment and the embarrassment that lies ahead for us? Who wouldn't want to escape the heartbreak that may lay in the future? Who who wouldn't want to bypass that for what seems like a better way? an easier way. Who wouldn't want that? We all would. You don't have to do it this way. You don't have to, you can get to the same place, but in a different way. You came to to conquer the kingdoms of this world. Hey, I got a better way to do it. You can get to the same place, but a very different way. You can have what you want, but just one concession, one compromise, just put it aside for a moment. And what we know now is that at that moment, the destiny of Jesus was at stake. 
The destiny of Jesus, what the Father had sent him into the world to do was at stake. But Jesus, in that moment, he wanted an unbroken fellowship with his Father more than maybe even what he wanted most. And what he would have wanted most in that moment, any of us could relate to because who wants all the pain and the betrayal and the embarrassment and the heartbreak and the rejection and all of that? Who wants that? Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And Jesus, our king, emerges from the wilderness as the one who did what Adam could not. Adam, in the order and the beauty of the garden, who made self-interest his greatest interest. Jesus, in the chaos and the disorder of the wilderness, refused to make self-interest his greatest interest interest. Jesus emerges from the wilderness doing what Israel could not in the 40 years of being in the wilderness. He emerged as the one who refused to put his own self-interest in the place of his greatest interest. And knowing what was ahead for Jesus Knowing what he was saying yes to, it pulls back the curtain and it shows us who this king really is. For in the moment of his testing, his metal started showing, his character, it was evident, his courage, his conviction, his resolve, his determination. In the face of the enemy, ah, oh, we see him, this king, this leader, this king that in some way is the king of all kings. Jesus refused to make his greatest interest his own self-interest. And that is stunning. It is telling, it is revealing. But what comes next is even better. He refused to make his greatest interest self-interest because his greatest interest was you. His greatest interest was me. His greatest interest was us, was saving us, redeeming us, bringing us back into the family of God. So for Jesus, there would be no rescue there would be no miracle, no easy, painless path through the will of the Father. It would be this temptation that would come up over and over again to our King. One day he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be mocked, I'm gonna be scourged, I'm gonna be crucified. They're gonna spit upon me. And Peter said, far be it, it'll never happen. And Jesus looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. Stop tempting me to make my greatest interest self-interest. As he was scourged and he carried the cross to Golgotha, and as all the forces of hell and darkness 
began to convene and converge upon that one place outside of Jerusalem. And as it seemed like this invasion of darkness could not be held off, who could stand against this enemy who's so powerful and so final? And as the forces of darkness descended upon the cross, even then they said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in their words, the enemy was saying, forget about them. Forget about you. Forget about me. Forget about us. Forget about what we need. Forget about what we can't do for ourselves. Forget about them. Save yourself. They're not worth it. Do you know how many times he's gonna fail? Do you know how many times he's gonna raise his fist in your face and fight against your will? Do you know how many times he's gonna flee and run away and be a coward? Do you know? Forget him. And Jesus said, even now, I could call the special forces, 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels on high alert, ready to extract me, ready to escort me out. But our King, he gave a hard pass on that one. And he says, the fight is mine. I've got work to do, work that only I can do. So he showed up and he stayed in. He fought the fight that we couldn't win. And for six hours, there was a showdown between light and darkness and life and death. And when they took our King's body off the cross, it seemed as though death had won. But Sunday was coming. Our King faced sin, remained sinless so he could become the savior of sinners. Our king died for sinners. Our king defeated sin. Our king gives sinners victory over sin so that we can say that sin, sorrow, and death, it's no longer my master. I am part of a new kingdom. Jesus is my king. He is a king who faced sin remain sinless to save me from my sin. He that knew no sin became sin for me that I could be made right with God so that I can have a king who knows my struggle, my temptations, my appetites. But yet even though when he was tempted, he without sin, that's our king. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We see who you are in your moment of testing. We see what you're made of. And we're drawn to that. We want to stand with you because of that. Follow you because of that. Don't let us forget what you were willing to do. Don't let us get so distracted that we forget 
what you said no to and what you said yes to because of us. If you're here at one of our churches today and you're in the midst of temptation, he faced it for you to create a way of escape for you to get out of it. And maybe you're in a struggle you feel like you can't win. There is a great high priest sitting at the throne of God who has been tempted in all points, even as you are, but yet he is without sin. You can follow him out of the grip of temptation. If you're here and you've crossed over into, from temptation into sin, you you can walk away today. You can walk away today. There is help, there is grace available for you. So Father, I pray, would you give freedom? Father, would you set those who are caught in the grip of temptation and sin, would you set us free? Because we've got a king who's defeated sin sin is not my king it is not my master so father help us help us as only you can in jesus name and everybody said amen